0: You can learn more about Seeking Integrity and my work there at www.seekingintegrity.com. Now let's get started. Hey everybody, welcome to Sex, Love, and uh, Addiction. Every you know what I'm going to say because I say it every week. How excited I am about the guests that I have, but this is a really this is an important guest to me. So I am really excited about this person. Um, I want to introduce you to you, Kelly McDaniel, and let me go through a little bit formal stuff about Kelly. Kelly is an LPC, an NCC, and a CSAT. She has a private practice in Nashville, Tennessee, where she uh, works. and focuses on the uh, treatment of adults and couples. She has extensive training. Kelly has like been with all the gurus. She worked with Dr. Carnes. She worked with Sue Johnson. She worked with Pia Melody. She's had a, an enormous amount of training. Uh, she's an EMDR therapist. Kelly is a member of the Society of the Advancement of Sexual Health. She holds an education, uh, an MA from Georgetown. Ooh, you went to Georgetown. How cool is that? Yeah. And an MA from St. Mary's in San Antonio. In 2008, GentlePath Press published uh, Kelly's first book, Ready to Heal, written for women Healing from Addictive Love and Relationships and Sexual Problems. The book um, really kicked off a recognition that women need gender-specific um, help with addictive relationships and uh, healing from abuse. And uh, and what I'm really excited about is there was a second edition, uh, edition that uh, Kelly wrote, which is expanded to include a chapter on mother hunger. And I love that term. You know, I just love... I don't want to have it, Kelly, but I love the term mother hunger, and that's going to be the title of her next book. So Kelly McDaniel, welcome. I'm so glad you're here.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Rob.
0: Kelly, you have really made a difference in the lives of a lot of women, even, and just like me, ones that you'll never know, you'll never meet. You're one of the first people I met who really said, I'm going to write this book about women and sex and love addiction. And I guess I want to go back just a little bit to Ready to Heal. I know now it seems like ages ago, 10 years,
1: years. and
0: yet- you can you continue to be acknowledged and and really sourced as somebody who created this material and and set us off on a path for women to get healing. So I guess I want to ask how you look back on that book or anything you want to say about that book before we talk about new stuff, because it's very meaningful here.
1: Thank you for the invitation to speak about the early ideas that came in Ready to Heal. When I wrote Ready to Heal 10 years ago, I was more concerned about framing the cultural context yes. that would set women up to need any addiction, but to illuminate specifically the way culture invites women to rely on love, rely on sex as a source of power, but then demonizes her for using that. That was my main agenda because it was missing in addiction, education, training, and treatment.
0: You know, you know, Kelly, I want to just say that I, I really am glad you pointed that out because I remember hearing you speak when the book came out. Mm-hmm. And I was really aware of the strong emphasis you had on culture mm-hmm. and how much you know young girls are acculturated in ways that set them up if they are vulnerable emotionally to end up in a situation like being a relationship addict.
1: Exactly. In fact, it's almost amazing anyone gets by. <laughs> um, so thank you for paying attention to, to that 10 years ago. I think I was fairly radical, <laughs> definitely passionate. Now, I think think everyone's caught on to the power of misogyny and patriarchy, the influence on... I hear
0: it's an issue these days.
1: It's an issue for anyone who's not heteronormative. So when I re- first wrote the book, I had one paragraph on what I called mother hunger. That was in 2008. I wrote it with much trepidation. Because I was speculative in my research and theory. It was mostly based on my studies and clinical evidence. In 2012, after women who read this found me, I had a lot more access to doing research. I expanded it to a chapter. So now, six years later, 2018, I'm writing a book on mother hunger which to me is a trauma model that is specific to working with with women, although I think men struggle with this too. I'll say more about that as we go. But it's really resonating with clinicians as well as with the women who seek our help.
0: Can you talk more about specifically, if you had to put in a sentence or two, what is mother hunger? Um, who experiences it? What does it feel like for the person who does experience it? And how does it all kind of leave them making poor decisions?
1: That's a very large question. Yeah, that's, that's like seven um,
0: questions I know. Sorry.
1: Right. That's okay. I'll try to piece it down. Right. What is it exactly? And I define it as a traumatic stress reaction to early attachment And when I say early attachment, I go back to five weeks Mm. into conception in utero. Oh, yeah. The first environment, right? So we're talking in utero to age three trauma that is generally nonverbal embodied trauma that is affecting a woman's belief system physiology, psychology, and relational capacity.
0: So let let me interrupt for a second, because I want to make sure that everybody can understand the concepts that you're laying out. It sounds like you're talking about some form of trauma that occurs between mother and child at a very early age, even before the child would certainly remember. Yes. And and I'm guessing if you're hungry for something, that means you're either didn't get fed Mm -hmm. or you didn't get enough. So my thought is that mother hunger has something to do with neglect or needs not being met that really needed to be met, and that person's kind of wandering around the world like a ghost, you know, sort of forever looking for this thing they never got, only now they're 40.
1: That's so well said, Rob, because you speak to the ghost-like element here, which I call a trance or a disassociative trance, mm-hmm. that because this happened so young, pre-verbal, this is her norm. She doesn't know any other way.
0: So, so, her, so her, her, her norm is longing. Mm-hmm. Her norm is emptiness, not it would be nice to be with someone, but I'm incomplete without them. Kind of like that.
1: And that there's a fog with this there's a trance with this. With, there with what? There is with mother hunger, with this kind of complex trauma, mm-hmm. her personality never integrated. She had to dissociate in the crib from neglect and or abuse.
0: And can you explain dissociation? You remember, we're for folks who are listening, because not everyone is a therapist. So when you say... Yes. So I'm going to interpret. So a neglected child needs to find, who's feeling lonely and sad and empty and wants to be held and nurtured and engaged in all those things that, that we hunger for is left with this place that they need to go to comfort themselves because they don't have a person who's doing it. And dissociation is an emotional state that a child, like a fantasy state, that a child will put themselves in in order to protect themselves when there isn't a person around to make them feel better.
1: That is one way to look at it as a fantasy state. But what I'm really looking at is it's a for freeze state. Mm. So bear with me. We all know a little bit about trauma. Mm -hmm. I think most of us know that if we're terrorized, we will fight or flee or freeze. For the child who is the victim of maternal abuse, she can't fight she can't leave so she'll freeze Mm. and in the freeze state there's a dissociation that happens so that she can't know that she's in danger right so if that's the norm that was the entrance into the world there's a huge gap between I am safe versus I feel safe that goes into adulthood.
0: You know, it, it's fascinating to me listening to you always because I, I, in thinking about trauma, I mean, I guess I, I know this is obvious, but uh, I know for me having had a, a tremendous amount of, you know, I had a psychotic mother. I mean, very mm. crazy, very, uh, you know, probably was very troubled when I was in, in utero. And I realized in listening to you, it just says a phrase that never crossed my mind before. So please forgive me for taking the time, but
1: this is great.
0: It's like, there are people who have some sense of a norm for being mothered and loved some sense of kind of, for lack of a better term, call and response. You know, I reach out, mom is there, you know, and it's, and as we say in our field, it's good enough. Right. It, It never occurred to me just in this very way that If you never have that, if your responsiveness from your most important caregiver is impaired from the start, and you don't even have a sense of what normal or healthy is, you've never experienced it.
1: That's beautifully said. And why this work to help women find, develop, and be okay with a self is the first time she's done that. Because women, and I think to a large degree, you can relate to this as a man, we don't develop a self by ourselves. We do that in a relationship.
0: Well, I would say no one develops a self alone. We all develop self as a reflection of how we're treated, as a reflection of what we see in other people's eyes. That's how we come to learn who we are.
1: Right. And our first love is our mother. Right. And if she couldn't love. And again, this is where I want to be really careful, Rob. So indulge me a moment, but every woman is a product of misogynistic culture. So every woman to some degree comes to motherhood with her own wounding, treated maybe, hopefully, generally not. Not. And so she may be loving the best she can and that may not be adequate.
0: You know, Kelly, when you say loving the best you can, you imply that there's already a relationship. But I want to say that, I mean, you know, I do, Um, I'm on in the rooms every Friday night at six o'clock. I'm on sex and relationship healing every Monday night at six o'clock, talking to people live. And one of the most common experiences I hear from women who, by the way, I don't know if you know this, Kelly, but you know, when I walk into a 12-step meeting in the world, or I go to a group support for love and relationship addiction in the real world, 80% men. When mm-hmm. I go online to a community like like, uh, like Sex and Relationship Healing, and I'm on there talking, and I'm saying, anyone wants to talk about sex and love addiction, and it's 80% women. Mm-hmm. And it's all those women who seem to feel so much safer online than publicly revealing themselves or even having to ask somebody for help about sex and love, that's very shameful, especially for a woman. So these women are coming to me online and the most common question is, not that they don't ask all kinds of sex and love addiction questions, but the most common one is, I seem to date the wrong guy over and over and over again. I seem to date the loser. I seem to date the addict. I seem to date the guy who cheats on me. Why can't I choose someone healthy? And I can't help but think that our most basic idea of how we would form what a good person would be for us is the same time when you're realizing what love is. And so a lot of these women that are running around with this kind of idealized version of what they think love might be without maybe ever really having experienced it.
1: Never experienced it. Wow. In fact, profoundly in the cases of mother hunger, neglect, terror, abuse, were the early attachment lessons that's a betrayal Uh so when we work with women who either betray themselves or are betrayed by their partner it's a replay Mm -hmm. of the original wound Mm -hmm. it's a map of where we need to go to heal
0: hey there i sure hope you're enjoying this sex love and addiction podcast And, and I want to point out for everybody who's listening, because I know this is important to Kelly as it is to me, that, that we are not here to parent bash. It's not our job to point fingers and say, oh, well, these parents did a terrible job. And I know in my example, and I, I don't know, you know how Kelly wants to speak about who she's working with, but I've met very, very few people who had malicious mothers or mothers who intended in any way to hurt their child. What I have run into is hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people over my career whose mothers just didn't cut the mustard. They just didn't have, they did not have what it took to raise and love a child in the way that child needed to be loved. And if we look at it that way, then we can love the mother who was doing the best she could, even though it wasn't good enough. And we can love the child who tried to get as much as they could, but they didn't get enough. And it isn't blaming or shaming. It's just sad.
1: It is tragic that the greatest loss to a mother and to a daughter is the chance that they could have had a a relationship. But again, this goes back to inherited beliefs about femininity that are damaging and passed down grandmother to mother to daughter. And for women that come into work and realize how they did fail their children, oh, the grief.
0: And, and I will say if that mother has matured enough in her adult life to be able to reflect on that. That's right. As we know, there are many mothers who are sadly alcoholic or mentally ill or or, or impaired, and they can never see.
1: They never can.
0: And that's hard on us, the children, because we have to indulge our parents who think they were just the best mom ever.
1: <laughs> they do. There are choices there right, right. that I do outline in my book, but basically you're facing grieving that you didn't really have a mother, even if she's on the planet.
0: Right. You know, I'm thinking, Kelly, that this isn't just applied to people who pick the wrong person or people who are nope. forever looking for a relationship. And I'm thinking about some of the men I work with who say, you know, I feel like I'm, the, I, I have to be the entire support for my wife or girlfriend, like every, yeah." every that she doesn't have for a lot of girlfriends that she mm-hmm. turns to me for everything and I love her dearly but I feel like she's becoming more of a kind of a child to me than a wife. That's
1: right because she's coming to him unconsciously to say be my mother. Nobody can do that. Right.
0: So you know I have a th- interesting thought and and I know that you will resonate with this immediately because we've been through a lot of good work together. You know when you use the term mother hunger. It's fascinating to me that you use that particular term because inevitably, at least half of the women I work with, if not more, who struggle with relationships and intimacy and love and sex also struggle with eating.
1: The first ways we take in nourishment, our mother's love and our mother's milk or some form of feeding.
0: So I I, I would absolutely say, I think you probably agree with me from what I'm hearing, that when I work with a woman who is struggling with both eating and sex or eating in relationships that I assume that her injuries were early, that they, because they're related to, as you say, our most primitive experiences of being loved, which is being sensuality, being held and touched and played with and, you know, washed and, and then also feeding. And if there's impairment in those, relation in those times, then we're going to carry that issue forever. We're going to think, well, if I eat enough, I'll feel like I'm loved. If I have enough sex, I'll feel like I'm loved. If
1: you know, like That's right. The touch deprivation is huge. Mm-hmm. The starvation or overindulging is embodied, nonverbal, but being acted out with food and relationships. And I'd like to add that early on, you and I were talking about how mother hunger is really A gender-sensitive name for early trauma, Mm -hmm. but I don't call it post-traumatic stress. And let's think about what Michelle Mays has done with partners, women who have found themselves betrayed by their partner in some kind of sexual, erotic, relational way. She's very clear that this is a complex trauma because it's not over, It's present. It's right now. Well, unless a woman has lost her mother, it's still right now.
0: Can you say more about that?
1: That any type of interaction with her mother is going to be super complicated. Mm -hmm. Um, The amount of either denial or reactive response to her will play out romantically with her current day lovers, but also with her friends or lack thereof.
0: Well, there's a satisfaction issue here. I mean, and I can certainly think about it in terms of if you're empty all the time, kind of like a sieve. Then all the love you get and all the appreciate, whatever comes to you, just kind of drains back out, and you need more because there's no container there to hold. There's no self, no self-esteem to hold, which would be the container to hold that love and appreciation and validation from others. So you're you're empty all the time,
1: all the time. And I'll add to that, which I love the concept of emptiness with hunger. Mm-hmm. But if we're going to use a clinical term, she's a divided self. A dissociated self. So she's got a self who gets her through the world. Yes. But there's an unknown self deep inside who's hurting every day.
0: It's interesting you just talk about the divided self because I, there are two pieces of that that I've been looking at a lot lately. One is I've been looking a lot at crisis. You know, I wrote this book called Prodependence, and I've been looking about at what happens to a woman in particular when she's experiencing betrayal and she walks into one of our offices. And I understand that that woman is in crisis, yeah. and so I've been thinking about what does crisis really mean, and what it means is is that your emotions and your intellect are out of balance. That you are so invested emotionally in a situation that you're not thinking clearly. That's a big part of being in a crisis. And part of a therapist's job is to help restore thinking, like to be able to, you know, this is how we'll work through this. And here are to to move you out of the intense pain, emptiness, loneliness into solution. And it strikes me that that the people, I want to say people because I don't think it's just women who have mother hunger, but, but those who have mother hunger, when they get in relationship, they lose the ability to really access their intellectual self. And they get weighed down by all their emotional needs that come up with the possibility of finally being loved.
1: Well, exactly. Which is why mother hunger treatment is very difficult different than standard sex and love addiction treatment. It is more related to the treatment we've learned in EMDR training and somatic training that what we're doing as clinicians is sitting with inside the grief for hours, days. This is why one hour a week sometimes is nowhere near adequate. This is why longer intensives work to imprint into the brain an embodied new belief that, hey, she sat with me for three days. My therapist could tolerate my grief, help me name it, help me find it. Women won't find this by themselves. And sometimes it's too hot to touch
0: one of the things that I had to write about, didn't have to, chose to write about in ProDependence was about what women have had to do in our culture to succeed and to get ahead. And a lot of what happened in the 60s and 70s was women really doing their best to be like men or become like men, more aggressive, more assertive, you know, less focused on building community with other women, less empathic, more about more like men. And that's what women in the past had to do to get ahead. But something was lost in some of that, I think. And and I want and I consider myself a feminist, so I'm only as much of a feminist as I can be as a man. <laughs> so I sure. uh, I'll say as a male feminist, I think that from what I see, women gain their strength with each other. That yes. that when women come together as a community, that that's where their strength is. That's where their power is. And Kelly, you will laugh at this, but I say this a lot, and I want you to correct me if you think I'm wrong. But I actually think that one of the ways that women tolerate men is with each other. I mean, we're difficult. We're narcissistic. We're ego focused. We're demanding. We're solution focused. We are non empath. You know, men are men, and it's fascinating to me that the way I see healthy women handle men is they because to- I, I, I listen. I hear you ladies, you call each other and you say things like, Oh my God, I can't believe my husband this, or I can't believe my boyfriend that, or do you believe we spent this weekend doing this? Or can you believe he won't help me with that? And I realized that, you know, while that is, I I'd prefer that we were just more stand up and did everything you needed us to do. But the point is, is that women really find their deepest strength, not only in their primary partner and family, but in a community of women who support them and healthy women, I think, have that community throughout their lifespan or they create it and and the women we're talking about turn to men looking for this
1: yeah because if you think about it if your first broken heart was your mother, mm-hmm. why would you trust women mm-hmm. Women become instead competitors right or some object to be used if you're bored and lonely right. but rarely a source of admiration, strength, guidance. It it takes a long time for women with mother hunger to trust women.
0: Mm -hmm. But doesn't that mean, okay, this is a dumb question maybe, but if I don't trust men, then I don't trust myself because I am a man. So how does that apply? I think that applies somehow.
1: It totally applies, which goes with the divided self, dissociated self, Women with mother hunger do not know themselves and can't trust their choices. That's one of the biggest losses. Mm -hmm. Strength. They haven't yet built a core sense of, this is me. Mm -hmm. I can take up space without being either abusive or a doormat.
0: Kelly, I've read your work and and appreciated your work and watched your work. And I have to say that as a man, if I put the word man in and remove the word woman, I think it would be every man I've ever worked with what I would call the hole in the soul that addicts talk about. When I think about what it takes for a man to, a sexually addicted man or a sexually impulsive man to allow himself to be vulnerable enough to focus on one person rather than racing all over the place and being terrified around intimacy, I think about mother hunger. What we deal with is attachment disordered people who were Often before they can remember it, disconnected from their most meaningful relationships in a way that has impaired them for life and they don't even know it. How do you see that? Why why did you not make Mother Hunger gender neutral?
1: Well, great question. First off, I want to acknowledge that when I was writing this, there weren't enough resources for women. Mm. There were resources for men, and I love Ken Adams' work about enmeshment, which touches on really one form of mother hunger at the hands of a mother who's so... Self-obsessed. Right. That she suffocates this child. And so talk about having a hard time naming what you didn't get when you over-received things that you didn't want. Too much
0: of this. Too much attention. Too too much. much,
1: That's right. So mother hunger speaks more to... I mean, enmeshed children... Daughters and sons, yes, they have mother hunger. They didn't get the mothering they needed, but they got a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. So they may not resonate with the term hunger mm-hmm. because they're full of stuff they don't want, <laughs> but they're full. Uh-huh. Whereas with hunger, it's almost easier to name because mom was generally out of control with rage. Mm-hmm. Unavailable with mental illness or addiction, she did abuse her children Mm -hmm. in ways that are more overt. Mm Emmeshment's more silent. It looks like, oh, what a sweet mom. Mm. Hollywood fantasizes this. Mm-hmm. They make it look good mm-hmm. with an uh, abusive mother. I don't think anybody likes mm-hmm. the way they look. Mm-hmm. They don't want to talk about it. We really don't want to think a mother could hurt her children in ways that I see all the time. But
0: don't we profoundly underestimate the effect of postpartum depression? And how that affects the mother's ability to provide that love. Because unless she is absolutely miserable and willing to get help for herself, it, you know, she'll try to barrel through that. But what she may not see is her her lostness, her depression, her hurting is actually not meeting the needs of the child as it could.
1: And most likely is inherited. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's yes, her yes, own yes, yes. dealt with grief, pain, mm-hmm. at what it is to be a woman in patriarchal culture, trying to nurture a baby all alone and no telling what her relationship with her mother is. But I think postpartum depression is a symptom of post-traumatic stress from her own upbringing. Oh,
0: by the way, I wanted to um, give you a note on post-traumatic stress because you said, obviously, this is not that and you're right. But I'll give you a term. I have a colleague and a friend I've developed by the name of Christine Courtois. And Christine is really... She's really been a leader in the trauma field going back to, she opened the first women's rape trauma centers back in the seventies. And Christine is amazing. And uh, one of the things that she talks about and that actually she's involved with working with the American Psychological Association is trying to come up with a diagnosis that she calls, and I think you'll appreciate this, early complex trauma.
1: That's what this is. Which
0: is not just one thing that happened and generally not something that happened like war or a fire or something when you were older, but- But it's the complexity of the broken interaction between, profoundly broken interaction between parent and child that leaves that person with trauma, like addiction, like relationship problems, like behavioral issues throughout their lifespan.
1: Exactly. Because the trauma forms before language, before the frontal cortex makes sense of it. So it is wired into the body Mm -hmm. as the norm. This is what love feels like. This is what the world feels like. It's a dangerous place,
0: and even when my relationship is going well, under stress, I will regress because that's what mm-hmm. people have wounding do, and I'll become this needy mess that I don't want to be right in front of you. Um,
1: yeah, yeah,
0: Kelly, I, I you know one of the things that touches me in talking to you, and I think everybody can hear this is your compassion, and you clearly have deep empathy and love for these women and a desire to help them heal. And I, I can hear that in your voice and I see it in your writing. I'm, I'm so grateful for you. Tell me how people can find you if they want more of Kelly McDaniel. How do they find your work? How do they find you?
1: Well, first of all, thank you for giving me a voice so that your listeners can learn more about this if they'd like to. And you've always been a champion for those of us that are navigating helping people with addiction. So thank you.
0: I'll give you one more than that. I think I opened the first two women's centers for intimacy disorders that didn't have men working there or going there for treatment.
1: (laughs) Exactly. In that way, understanding that women need gender specific attention at least for some part of their treatment be,
0: right well if you're going to heal a mother wound they're going to have to bond to other women and
1: you're going to have to mother
0: wounded women will look to men for attention and that even yeah. the man can be an 80 year old janitor but she will look to his attention before all the other more yeah. loving women in the room because that's her brokenness
1: and he may look safer than a woman mm-hmm. because women with mother hunger transfer their attachment needs Mm -hmm. to men early on, to their daddies, a brother, an uncle. And
0: everything the culture supports.
1: That's right. So I don't think I answered your question, but we could talk on and on. We have so much to say here. So how
0: can they find you, Kelly?
1: Right. Best way is kellymcdanieltherapy.com.
0: Wow, that was easy. And tell me the names of your books and how they can find those.
1: Well, my new book is called Mother Hunger healing your first broken heart. And that is also a way you can find me if you Google that ready to heal is the other book. And it's the same name, edition one, edition two.
0: And ready to heal is for women who struggle with sex and relationship addiction. Exactly. And mother hunger is more about the origins of where those kinds of wounds and other wounds come from.
1: Precisely. And I will be touching on eating disorders as well as love and sex addiction.
0: Well, Kelly, I really hope that you can come back. And if if not to the podcast, maybe we can do some live things online so people can, uh, because I really like it when people can ask you questions. And so maybe we can do some webinars so people can interact with you and ask you, uh, you know, themselves what they're struggling with, because they're going to get a taste of this from you here. Mm -hmm. But I don't think a taste of telling me down is enough. You got to dig into the whole thing. So we really (laughs) thank you, Kelly.
1: Rob, such a pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: You're welcome, and you're always welcome. Hi, this is Dr. Rob again. Thank you for joining us today. If this show has inspired you to seek further information for yourself or someone you love, I encourage you to visit our Treatment Center website, which is www.seekingintegrity.com.